Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast with Jason and Peely. Today we have Darren Seeger. Yay! Welcome, Darren. How are you? I'm well. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, Darren is an investor here in New Jersey and also a Keller Williams agent, a dual threat, as we say. He's uh, one of the first <laughs> investors that actually sat down with Peely. Yep. And he and was he, beyond he was inspirational and really beyond. a Kickstarter for uh, a lot of what she was doing, a lot of what eventually yeah, we were I remember, doing. So thank you. I remember Darren's first lesson and the best lesson that I could have had coming as a first-time investor talking to somebody that's been in the business for a while was on value add. And we'll get into that more later. So thank you so much, Darren, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So we always like to just start with a quick intro of how'd you get started in real estate? Uh, I got started in real estate uh, from a standpoint that uh, I went to university later on in life compared to others. And uh, when I got done, uh, I guess it was my late 20s, a bunch of my friends had started getting married and were buying homes. Uh, and I kind of realized with the amount of money that, uh, Deloitte and Touche was paying me at the time, the only way that I was going to be able to get into a home was by going into a multifamily home. And, uh, I had learned from a, a previous professor, uh, who had a bunch of properties, the, basically the 1% rule. And he went into detail about how it is that, you know, you got to make sure, uh, you need to get at least 1% of the purchase price every single month or else there's a good chance the property will actually lose money in small multifamily. Now, I know there's a bunch of people you've probably spoken to that there's you know, the 1% rule, there's the 2% rule and you know the 3% rule, whatever the heck there is. And obviously, they're all rules of thumb. I think all those rules came about because of what price point people are necessarily purchasing at. Obviously, if you're below the $100,000 price point, makes more sense that you have to abide by that 2% rule because the price of goods and services and repairs are going to be equal to a house that's four or $500,000. But 1% of a $500,000 price tag is going to be generating, you know, $5,000 a month in rent. Whereas a home that costs $50,000, you get 2%, obviously that's going to be a thousand dollars a month. So Sure. And, and this, just for context for the listeners, one and 2%, this one and 2% uh, of your rent, but what, what is this to cover? What is, what is the emphasis for what this is covering overall? Uh, well, I guess most people start when they're starting out and they're, they're talking to their agent, they'll think, well, most agents will think that you're making money if you're just covering your mortgage and your interest and your property taxes, uh, and your insurance PITI. Um, but there's obviously other expenses that come along with owning a multifamily house, such as repairs, um, vacancy and vacancy obviously is when you don't have someone in there paying you rent, uh, CapEx, which is short for capital expenditures. So there's, there's all other factors that you need to take into consideration just outside your primary payment that you go through every single month. That's great. Are you guys hearing this? Like he's already like, from, from like, we're not even like five minutes into this and Darren's already like throwing down nuggets of just awesomeness. These are things that you need to learn as a beginning investor. Like I just, like my mind's exploding. Yeah, Thank you, Darren. It's very important that your property, it may rent for $3,000, but there's going to be months where you just 
don't have a tenant. So thus you don't have those $3,000. And if you are banking on that property being rented all the time and uh, 12 months a year, every year have the rental income, and that's just what makes that property work. Well, then you need to reassess your numbers and take into account all the additional costs, expenses that may creep up on you. Cause basically kill your cash flow and uh, for you know, one, two months could kill your cash flow for five or six years if you're just spreading out a hundred, 200 hours a month. So. Oh, absolutely. And my opinion is that most people can actually avoid that situation in most cases if they manage their properties properly. Uh, and that really has to come down to understanding who their client is for those particular properties and managing your lease and understanding when it comes down to lease renewals that you're getting your renewal out in the time that you're actually allotted in your state. It can be different things here in New Jersey. Uh, we're allowed to get a decision from the tenant 90 days out. So in most cases, uh, before those 90 days, actually before the end of the lease, I actually send out a renewal uh, and make sure I get an answer by that 90 day time period. So that way, if they're not going to renew, it gives me three months to find a new tenant, you know, one quarter of a year. If, if you can't properly find a tenant in that time period, then you're probably overpriced or you're doing something wrong or the tenant maybe not allowing you to actually show the unit. But that's also another factor of having a good lease because you should have that in your lease. That's yeah, exactly. that you can show the apartment <laughs> X and Y time periods throughout the day. And so. You should all be taking notes here. Sure. You definitely should. <laughs> so, so you have this professor, he says, okay, listen, you need to account for the 1% rule. And this is something that you, you take and, and you start running with what, what really allowed you to take that, that mental action step to say, okay, I, that makes sense to me. I'm going to go out there and find a property. Well, the professor that taught me, his name was Peter Health. And the, the guy almost kind of looked like Einstein where you see Einstein, like all disheveled and, and everything. And he literally would walk into uh, the campus sometimes like in slippers, you know, and, and you would think that there's something wrong with the guy, but he was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and he had a tremendous, well, I'll say a tremendous amount, but he had more than a dozen multifamily properties. And because of all this, uh, it allowed him to do what he wanted, when he wanted, whenever he wanted. So it was kind of seeing that and understanding from him, because it, we became friends along the way when I, when I was taking classes, that uh, it allowed him to live the lifestyle that he wanted, right? And he loved to teach. Teaching truly was his passion, but teaching for him wasn't a job. Yeah. He wasn't doing it because of a paycheck. Didn't mean that he was underpaid doing it, <laughs> but still, you know, the aspect of he had all the money that he needed in the world. He had like prized possessions that most people would just crave. Like Jason, he had, I think the, I think he has the fourth or the 12th Mustang ever produced by four. What? Sitting in a garage, the white convertible, just, you know, and there it is. And, and that's part of his prized possessions all paid for by his properties. So I, I kind of had this in my mind when going out that, you know, for me to get started, maybe this is really the route that I should be taking because if I could lower my cost of living by having someone else help me out, then chances are, um, 
I wouldn't have, in most cases, what would be the biggest expense that most people go through every single month, which is paying that mortgage payment. People live for making that payment. And if you can drastically reduce your cost of living or, or cut it down to zero, then anything else that you're doing in your life, when you're generating income, you're keeping, which is just fantastic. So, do you have any suggestions for people who who they understand what you're saying, but maybe they're just living paycheck to paycheck, hitting that mortgage, and they they're trying to find a way to offset their mortgage and others by getting into a rental property, but maybe the thought of coming up with a 3.5, down payment is staggering to them. Do you have any suggestions about mm-hmm. maybe saving money or step? taking that first step or any, anything out there that they can help them take that first action step at least to, to finding something that can maybe help them get that first rental property? Uh, I would probably say the hardest thing that most people go through is actually making a decision and sticking to it. Um, I think anyone who's really successful in life is able to make a decision quickly about things and then keep to it. Um, when it comes to, if, if you're really serious about doing something like this, then you have to commit. It's like committing to anything else that you do in your life. Uh, you know, if, if you're, if you want to be fit, then you obviously you need to exercise and you need to do it every single day. If you're really interested in doing this with your life and cutting down your cost of living and actually making something happen, then you're going to have to put the time and effort into this just like you would anything else. And I learned from a very smart man a long time ago by the name of Mark Marchesani. He said, thinking about doing something and doing something are two totally different things. So you can spend a lot of time thinking about it and, and you may believe inside because you're thinking about something all the time that you're actually doing something, but you're not, you know, it's about the actions that you take versus how much thought process actually goes into it. And that doesn't, you know, diminish the fact that you obviously need to talk about these things. Uh, or think about them and how you're going to do it, but you have to take action. And most people, even if they don't have a lot of capital to start off, obviously having programs like FHA is fantastic, um, where they can get into a multifamily unit for three and a half percent, but there's other things that they can do to create additional sources of income and also learn the business along the way. You know, you can go to a RIA or other meetups, uh, try to find a mentor who's doing something like you guys. You know, you guys are obviously kicking butt and you're putting together a team that's both beneficial to obviously you because you only have so much capacity. And now you're bringing other people, you're teaching them skills and you're giving them an opportunity to make income with you along the way, which then can go and get them into their own property and anyone can do that anywhere. It's, you know, taking action. Yeah, that's great points. And, uh, we, we talk about a lot is that people, they, they find so many things to, to fear that, that have not happened yet. And, and as reasons to stop them, like, well, what if I get a property and I can't find a tenant or what if I get a property and I have a tenant and he buys a bunch of stuff and the whole house is full of stuff and, and they'll find a reasons million different reasons why right. just, absolutely it just may happen that I, I, I don't know if I could do it. And, and I tell those people, you know what, you're hundred percent right. That could happen. 
you yeah. know, but if, if you focus on the bad things, uh, or the worst case scenario, and, um, in my opinion, that's kind of like thinking like an attorney, um, <laughs> in, in most cases you're absolutely right. You, you'll never be successful. Uh, I remember one gentleman who I met and I was actually trying to help him find a multifamily house and he literally talked himself out of every single deal because when he was analyzing the property and using numbers, he, he was using numbers that were so over the top in comparison to what were averages in the area. It's like, okay, we're in Northern New Jersey right now and our vacancy rates are around 3%. And he was using 10% as an average. I'm just like, and he was using 10% for uh, repairs, 10% for CapEx. And I'm like, you're absolutely right. The property will never make money with your model. Okay. <laughs> but in the real world, it probably will. Yeah. So, you know, he's like, well, I'm being conservative. I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with being conservative. I'm like, if average is 3% and you're using five or five and a half, I said, that's being conservative. But, you know, more than tripling the number, I said, is that is huge. Yeah, exactly. So I said, no matter what, you're right. The numbers will never work on this property and they won't work on any single property. And to this date, I don't think he ever bought one. Yeah, so, and you're right. And this, this comes back to a lot with uh, just just the rules of thumb. So the rules of thumb work to a point to at least give you overall analysis to, to if you should review or analyze further. But when you get into the property, you really have to look at your market and say, okay, what does the market actually do? So, cause I mean, you may have uh, looked to rehab and if you're just putting in every house, no matter what house it is, it's $50 a square foot for repairs, just straight across the board. Well, you make right. plus or minus on a lot of these houses and upside down or actually, you know, in the black, depending on where you fall out there, but it's going to price you out of a lot of deals. So yeah, that's great points. Thank you. Yeah, most of the houses, as you know, that we're working with, they're not cookie cutter. Well, but even if you are in a cookie cutter situation, let's say we're, you know, Toll Brothers or whatever, put a whole development up. You still don't know what you're going to get into with each individual house because you don't know who lived there before and let's say what they did to the house. But it, it's, you know, it's impossible to say. But again, if you can talk yourself out of anything, but you can also, if you're smart, figure out a way that something can work. And I know Brandon Turner's always, you know, pounds on this. Uh, multiple times through bigger pockets. It's like, you know, your brain has to be set in the fact of how can you get this done versus how can't you? Because once you change that thinking about your situation, then it, it literally opens up your mind to finding solutions on ways to, to make it happen versus figuring out ways that it won't. And so, That's amazing. Living your life in the can. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. We're going to still follow the same train of thought though. So you okay. were talking about clients that you're working with. So, and as we explained before, Darren is also an agent with Keller Williams. Um, so let's talk about like an investor agent relationship. Um, why did you decide to become an agent as an investor? Uh, I had, well, I was investing for more than a decade before I got my license. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I found out that no matter what it was that I was trying to do in finding a property that the agents that I found just didn't understand my methodology and my thought process. Uh, most agents that are out there are focused on the residential marketplace. Mm 
mm-hmm. and uh, they're not investors themselves. So um, they don't understand what it is to take a risk and you know put your money on the line. Um, again, they have that thought process if you're making money, if you're just paying for your PITI and that's it. So um, I, I, I literally couldn't get the service that I was looking for. And hence, that's the reason why uh, I got my own license. So you, you became your own service. Yeah. And I, I didn't do it, though, to serve others. Mm-hmm. I, I got it strictly for selfish purposes. You know, it would give me access to the MLS. And I probably wouldn't have gotten my license if there was an agent like me out there that I had found. It, it would have probably, you know, stopped that from happening. But the crazy thing is, Darren, you do serve others. You created the very agent that you were looking for. So let's go a little bit into that because you're actually working with other investors and helping them not only to learn, but to get their like their first properties or. And and I guess maybe you could talk on. uh, So I see it like the one way. I mean, Peely's an agent. I'm not. But uh, but when I speak to other agents and maybe they don't understand the investor mind track or they think that, you know, we're just going to go in there and throw, you know, bottom dollar offers. What we're trying to put in is we have a formula. And if you have stuff in this formula, we're not going to buy one. We're going to buy multiples. So Mm -hmm. you can work with us. We can try and make it as easy as possible for you. Or, you know, that retail buyer, you may sell them a house every one you know, every seven years. So you could be repeat, could make it easy. And there's some like yourself who Mm -hmm. have investors that will buy multiple houses. And I'm sure that's uh, definitely an advantage. Oh, it's, it's definitely an advantage. But again, it wasn't my thought process in getting my license to do this. It was actually a friend and a neighbor who kind of pushed me down the path of, of going this route. Uh, and it was the fact that uh, they were going to go sell their property, their primary residence. And, um, his wife was actually working for another real estate firm other than Keller. Uh, and she thought she knew based upon what other agents were telling her, um, what the value of their home would be at that time. And when I heard it, I I was just like, that didn't make sense to me. Uh, I thought the value of the house was, which is much better. And at the time I had my license. So, uh, I did some research and I knew their house well, uh, been in, in and out of it multiple times. And I, I kind of felt that they were undervaluing the house by about five to $600,000. Wow. And my friend uh, was just like, well, how's that the case? Well, I, I said, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, if you make a couple changes, you know, up, some updates to the house, it would bring you at a level based upon a whole bunch of other comps that had sold. And the house was very unique. It was a very big piece of property, which was walking distance uh, to the train station in Summit, New Jersey. And um, they were just like, you know, about how much would it be to get this done? And it was about a six-figure budget to make the improvements. And uh, they said, okay, go ahead and and get it done. So I did. And um, uh, his wife was a little bit nervous about my, my purchase price or the selling price, the after repair value. Uh, she thought it was a little bit aggressive and they definitely had to make their move. So I negotiated with her, like dropping the price by a hundred thousand dollars from 1.8 down to one, six, nine, five to make it seem a little bit nicer versus the number where she wanted it out at, at, at 1.5 after the repairs. And I was just like, I'm not going to leave money on the table. That's, that's too much money to, to be left. So, uh, she agreed. And then I also said, if we are going to get an offer in two weeks, I said, we'll drop the price. 
uh, by $100,000 to make sure the house sells. So needless to say, long story short, uh, we had um, an offer within two days um, and I negotiated with one buyer and got above the asking price. Nice. And uh, they were very, very happy. And my friend came back to me and he said, you know, you're doing the wrong thing right now. He's like, you should be working with other investors and that's how you should be utilizing your license. And I was just like, Hmm. (laughs) Okay. So he kind of, Dave planted the seed in my head about doing that because that it really wasn't my focus. And he's like, you have the experience, you know, you've been a landlord for a number of years now, and this is the route you probably should take. And it was great advice. You said two things in there. Um, one, I guess, was uh, about sold comps, using sold comps to be able to help you with your ARV and uh, the other bit about timing. I, maybe you could just touch on that for people. Just why are you not, like if someone lists a house in the street and just went on the market, why are you not using that as a comp? Why are you using sold comps and why? And where is the time frame that you usually look for for your comps? Well, the reason why you're strictly looking at sold comps versus what's on the market is because that anyone can price a house at any amount that they want. You know, you can price a house at a hundred million dollars and that, but at the end of the day, it's only worth what the market will determine it to be. It, it's not like, uh, it, I guess it's kind of like the same thing as if you were selling a stock, you know, if you wanted to sell your, um, Tesla stock at $10,000 a share, you're, probably not going to get any buyers right now, but if you put it at market value, someone's actually going to pick it up. And the reason why you need to do this, because in most cases, people are financing properties. And the only thing that a home appraisal will look at is actually sold properties, because that's what the bank will bank on and be able to lend out that money long-term. So that's why you, you basically have to, unless they're paying cash, uh, but you know, the amount of cash transactions over the past couple of years has gone down. Um, but still most people are financing. And so that's why you need to go after, you know, just the sold comps. I'm sorry, Jason, what was the other question? You, you uh, said? Timing. You may, so if you have a sold comp and maybe you, you have five in the street and mm-hmm. four from a year and a half ago and the other two are within, you know, six and three months, where, where yeah. are you putting your interest? You're putting your interest in really in the last six months overall, the appraisal will, will look at the last year. If they don't have a lot of solds, they may go back uh, a year and a half. But um, what you want to see is what the market is doing currently, as currently as you possibly can. So, you know, the more recent the comps are, the, the better off to, to support your numbers. Yeah. So, Darren, you are like the quintessential investor's agent. So if the investors out there, <laughs> if the investors out, out there can't have you, what should they look for in a good agent? Like if they're looking for agents, what are That's the questions question. they should ask yeah. um, these prospective uh, agents that they want to work with? Well, I, I, I kind of have like mixed feelings about other agents um, selling in income properties or investment properties. Uh, I don't think that most agents should do it. Um, I get a lot of people that reach out to me and they're like, Oh, I want to be like you. I want to be an investor agent. I'm going to go get my license. And they're like, what's the number one piece of advice you have for me? I'm like, don't do it. (laughs) That's, that's literally my number one advice. And, and the reason for that is what it really comes down to is experience. In fact, Peely, I, I think when you and I got together at Starbucks, 
you ask me if, if I could, you know, work with, with some of the people I was working with. And I, I think I told you the answer was no. Yep. I remember that. <laughs> and, and it basically, cause it came down to experience. Yes. You know, the one thing that doesn't happen in our industry, which I think really should is, I think there should be some type of testing that should go on for an agent to, to sell someone or work with them to find an investment property because the United States has other measures to make sure that when it comes to securities or whatever, uh, that people actually know what it is that they're talking about. Um, you know, if you're going to sell stocks or bonds, you need your series seven or 63, whatever the heck these are. I think that they should come up with standards for working with investors on property. It's all we have right now is, you know, caveat emptor. That's it. You know, it's literally buyer beware and you're, you're at the mercy of someone else and them giving you advice and most cases, most realtors don't have the experience in actually going out and long-term and, and actually doing these things. So they're, you know, they may talk about it. They may do it part-time or I've even have, I've heard other agents say they do it as a courtesy that they go into these marketplaces, which is just sad because, um, you know, it's dangerous. Absolutely. That's why this way. So my number one thing, I guess I would be asking my agent is what experience that you do have. Uh, do you actually own property yourself outside of your primary residence? That's a great question. Yeah. And you know, how long have you had it? You know, um, how long you've been working with tenants? How do you go about tenant screening? Because obviously if you're going to list with them as well, you want to understand that you're going to make sure you get a good tenant or reduce the chances of getting a problem tenant in there as well. Um, I guess that's probably the most important thing. What experience, you know, do you have? And as an investor, a note here is that if you do find an agent who is willing to work with you and, and go through maybe the hurdles to get you this property, if they're sending you properties, give them feedback. Don't just go silent. If you don't like the property or something else, don't just not get back to them. Maybe they misunderstood you. Maybe they didn't outline it right. Maybe that they are, they thought this might be good for you, but give them some context about the property. Follow if, up. Yeah, follow up. Wrong price point, mm-hmm. wrong number of bedrooms, too much rehab, not the right area, you know, anything just for that point. Because if they're going through this point, if you just expect them to go out there and just continue to send you countless properties just because, and you're not giving them any feedback, you probably are not going to have the best working relationship. Absolutely. Actually like following up on that. So flip side Mm -hmm. as an agent, you know, investors think they have, or, you know, on both sides, we like, you think you have the power, but actually it's the, what you said, it's having the experience, the experience equals power. So mm-hmm. as an agent, what do you look for in an, in an investor that you want to work with? Like, for instance, when we first talked, I was like, can I work with you, please? You know, <laughs> thing coming out of my ears as in like, as in like, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. And you were like, no, go get some experience and we'll talk later. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope I didn't come across as being I, set her on the right path. Well, no, it so. set me on the right path yep. because Darren did nothing but add value to my life at that point. He told me straight up, and that's what you need in this business. You need somebody to tell you that 
you do not have the experience right now, go read a book and do your first deal Mm -hmm. and then come talk to me. So. And most people are willing to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy now with like sites like bigger pockets. I mean, you virtually type in anything and someone out there has written something about it. (laughs) Literally the craziest topics like, uh, you know, residential, residential assisted living facilities in a two story house in the woods. Oh, and actually yep, that in. Yep, yep. 50 people <laughs> posted on it. Okay. I got all the information I want. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Let's roll with it. You know, it's, it's amazing. So yeah, if you, you can find the information, you just have to take a little, uh, a little initiative. So back to my question. So as mm-hmm. an agent, as an investor agent, what do you look for in actually prospective partners really? So what do you look for in other investors? Well, my number one criteria is that, um, Number well, first thing is they need to be able to actually execute. If they can't actually execute, there's absolutely no reason in me working with them. So uh, I vet them out, and I learned this the hard way by actually believing in people saying that they were going to do something or they have the ability to close. So you know, I learned my lesson. So pretty much now, if if you say you're a cash buyer, then you actually have to prove your assets. Uh, that's, you know, within the price range that you say that, that you can purchase at. Uh, if you're going to finance, um, I generally now, because the market has gotten so competitive, uh, don't really put much value into a pre-qualification letter. Um, you know, they're, they're called pre-approval letters, you know, and they're the same thing as the pre-qualification letters that existed before the bubble. They're one piece of paper and it's to me it's junk um so if someone's really serious i actually make them go through a full approval and actually get a loan commitment to be determined nice. so yeah otherwise i'm not going to take them out because my time is valuable uh, i also let them know at this point too i have an absolute minimum price point that i work at with a commission level um, and I did that recently because I, I found myself, you know, chasing properties for people that said they were in one, one price range and then they had me hunting down market and it just wasn't worth my time, you know, to be working on a house that was, you know, selling for $200,000. So now I have buyer's agreements and minimum amounts that uh, I'll work at. And if they don't sign them as well, then I'm not going to work with them. Yes. So, Fair points. You have to work yeah. for your value. So that's great. Yeah. Your time is worth something as well. And I explain that to people too. And so they're trying to make money, right? That's the sole purpose of an investor, a real estate investor. They're out there to try to make money. And sometimes they seem upset that you don't want to go chase down a $50,000 property in Newark, New Jersey for them. (laughs) And when you explain to them how much money you will actually take home at the end of the day after your split between you and your broker. And then you obviously got to pay taxes on it and everything else like that. It's like, am I really going to go run around for a few hundred dollars? No. no. Yeah. So, so I answered that question properly. I don't know. You did. Yes. <laughs> you did. You know, that's the, 
I mean, again, huge value add. Uh, agents, investor, investor agents, you shall be listening to this and taking notes from Naren because this is this comes from experience. This comes from it's it's being a there. it's an agent niche that is hard to find and and yeah. and not many people focus on it, and that's why it's important. Because a lot of people will, a lot of agents will say they work with investors, but maybe the con the the concept or the context of what they're actually think they're doing is not always the right for them and right for the investor. Mm -hmm. So when you have mm -hmm. someone strictly focused to get you a property and that property is going to either work as a flip for you to meet your returns or to, as a cash flow property, well, that, that's really important. So yeah, thank you. That's great. Yeah. Another question you can ask them is what percentage of their business is actually residential and what percentage of their business is investor? And look at it, not just, let's say over the last six, you know, six months, like uh, we're looking at sales comms, but look at it over the past couple of years. So uh, I think 99% of all my sales and, and deals that I've done in some way, shape or form since I got my license are working with investors. Huh. Oh, and Amazing. note for, yeah. for investors out there, you can ask the agent for like their sales history. Sure. Like yeah. they'll, they'll ha they should have it. Mm -hmm. They'll have it. They can like take it off the MLS, give you uh, examples of what they've sold over the past few years. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. That's great advice. So what's something you're working in, in your business right now to improve or do better? Mm. Uh, finding an assistant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't have ours. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, absolutely finding an assistant because I, I, I get bogged down in, I guess, smaller things that, that are tedious and it doesn't allow me to do the things that really I'm best at. So, um, I've had a very difficult time in trying to find a good assistant, um, and still working on it. Hopefully that'll happen at some point too, uh, soon in the future. Um, so where can people send resumes? Oh, <laughs> uh, where can they send? Well, I guess, yeah, it's a great question. I'm uh, half kidding, but hey, yeah, but hey, find the, per yeah. the perfect person might be listening right now. We have a lot of people in New Jersey listen to the show. Oh, yeah. you, I'm sure you can you put a link to my email address somewhere. Contributor on Bigger Pockets, and uh, he's on there regularly as well. So, with with something uh, of failure that that you, you can learn something from in real estate that you look back on and say, you know, well, that sucked when it was happening, but, but it helped me get to where I am. Uh, I probably would say is, um, trusting too much in other people, uh, that they'll actually keep their word on agreements that you make. Uh, it's, it's a funny thing when money is involved in the situation and the stresses that, you know, you can be put through or not just stresses from, let's say, if you're you know, being pinched in some way, shape or form, but when it comes to success as well, um, you know, I think people in most cases are, are greedy and um, when they actually see success, you know, they, they want to grab it and then maybe not share it in the way that they agreed to in the beginning. So I've just found, you know, you find all different types of people in the real estate world, because obviously everyone needs a place to live. So there's great people in this business and I've been absolutely blessed 
in, in meeting a number of them. And I've also come across a bunch of, I'll just say a bunch of real winners. (laughs) (laughs) Winners as in not so much winners. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they're all out there. Uh, so just, you know, you know, beware, you know, put as much down in, in, in writing as you possibly can and, and cover yourself in that respect. And so even if it's just a one page thing and understanding what the spirit of what it is that you're trying to do, yeah. even though here in New Jersey, you know, verbal contracts are legitimate, it's still tough to back it up. So yep. put it down, get it yeah. down in writing. What would you say your why is for doing all this? Big why. Big why. Um, I would probably say it was seeing other people in their life and having the mentality growing up. Uh, I guess I grew up in the eighties and I guess this is times where like movies like wall street came out and things like that. And everyone kind of had the the sense of they're going to make a ton of money in the market, or you're going to go work for Merrill Lynch, you'd be a broker or you need to have a huge brokerage account. Um, but at the end of the day, I, th- I think we were kind of pushed in that direction because of the fact that those businesses actually were trying to make money off the American public by having all those assets under management. So um, the reason why I did this was I, I, I felt that if I had a constant source of, let's say, cash coming in the door, uh, I would never have to worry about the fact that I would need such a big number somewhere in some account that I can go and look up on the internet or, you know, back before the days of the internet was just around. Right. So, um, my why was really to make sure that no one could ever come and put the pinch on me, so to speak, that, uh, I would have my own business that I could rely upon and it would just continue to generate monthly income with me, basically, you know, I'm not going to say on, on autopilot because I don't think it's truly on autopilot, but I believe it's kind of like, you know, getting your car up to highway speed and then maintaining it. Yeah. So as long as you do that, then chances are you can basically ride it off the whole life. And then again, put yourself in a situation where you can go out and do the things that you want to do when you want, whenever you want. So that's great. It's and number one reason probably the ability to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> we have you know, we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no sleeping yet. Well, think about this. You know, most people have a hard time sleeping at night because of financial stress. Okay, and if you can take that away, and um, chances are you're going to sleep better at night. And yeah. if you sleep better at night, you're going to put less stress on your body and be healthier mm-hmm. and uh, live a longer and more fruitful life and be a more pleasant person too, by the way. Ah, there you go. So. <laughs> well, talking yeah. about living a longer and fruitful life. Do you have a morning routine? Do you have something that you do every day just to like promote your health and well-being that you could share with us? Well, I generally wake up very early. Uh, I never used to be a morning person. Uh, but I've gotten now into the routine where I'm up usually anywhere from four 30 to five 30 every single day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the very first thing that I do, I will go down and make a cup of really, really good coffee. 
<laughs> so in most cases, if I can from, yeah, Kona, Hawaii. So it's possible. <laughs> yeah, um, but after that, I, I find that I do really good work where I'm able to focus really quickly and get a lot of things done where you don't have a lot of distractions from the rest of the world who isn't awake yet. Then when the rest of the world is kind of getting ready for their nine to five job, that's when I'll go now and I'll, I'll exercise and, uh, and do that every single day. I've been that's great. trying to keep myself healthier. So yeah, that's great. Great morning routine. Where get your work done early. do you see now your real estate business going? Like what, it, what would you say is your end game? Do you have a, do you have a, a number you're trying to reach in terms of property, in terms of cash flow, in terms of just comfort level, like where is something you're targeting? A goal. Uh, I would probably say I definitely have a number, a net number of what I want to achieve on a monthly basis. So definitely working towards that. And I don't think my number is um, probably in line with many other people's numbers. I know a lot of people think that you need, or at least you go on and you hear other people they are like, Oh, I want a thousand doors. I want X or they're thinking like crazy big, like Grant Cardone. And I don't think that you need that much in your life to have a phenomenal life. Okay. So I would rather have less uh, versus a lot, because if you have less then it's less personalities that you have to manage managing people is a very hard thing and I can't say I'm the best at it. So the less people that I have to manage, the better for me. <laughs> That's great. So, um, so yeah, my number that I'm, that I'm that we're trying to achieve, uh, is, uh, netting around $25,000 a month. I think at the end of the day, if you can't have a phenomenal life, yeah, at $300,000 a year, there's something wrong with you. You're not going to be happy at any number. Yeah. I don't think you're going to be happy even in like, you know, if you're doing $10,000 a month, that's phenomenal money to be making off your investments. If you can't be happy with that number, something is wrong with you. It's not about, so in the end, it's probably more so in your head and getting your head straight about yeah. what's important in life. But again, you can be happy with less. If, if your cost of living again is zero because, you know, you've basically paid off your properties using other people's money, you know, by them paying the rent and then you paying off those mortgages and you're making $10,000 a month net. I mean, how? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be able to travel multiple times throughout the year. You're going to be able to drive the car that, that you really want to, you're going to figure things out. You'll shop at whole foods, never have to worry about cutting coupons or doing any of those things. That's great. So, um, it's, it's really up to you. And, and that's why I think, especially here in the New York metropolitan area, you don't need a tremendous amount of properties to actually get those numbers. And then if you want to, let's say, go down South where it's warmer, the cost of living is even less. I mean, you're going to be doing even better. Yeah. So. That's nice. great. Well, well, you've given us so much, but before we let you go, could you give us a few words to live by? Like a quote you, you live by. Value add, the thing that we didn't touch on on houses. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. This entire, yeah. entire podcast was one huge value add. It's true. 
It's true. And so if you want thing. value add, Darren's been on a number of other podcasts where he's talked about how, you, how he adds value to uh, his apartments to make them tenant proof and other, other things that he does out there that, mm-hmm. that, that help you along the way to make yourself a better property. It's going to last longer. And uh, that can be heard by Darren and a number of other shows. Exactly. So. But exactly. yeah, thank well, you. Thank you so much, Darren. You've been amazing. <laughs> like like yeah. I said, this entire podcast has been one big value <laughs> add. Thank you so very much, Darren. Before we let you go, though. <laughs> He's always trying to cut out early. Is there anywhere that if uh, someone may want to reach out and say hello or have some questions or find out a little bit more about you that they can reach out to you? Uh, they can find me on biggerpockets.com. It's kind of sad that even to this date, I don't have my own website. Uh, but my email address is my name, Darren Sager, yahoo.com. Uh, that or they can find me on my Zillow profile if, you know, you can find me there too. So that's amazing. Again, yeah. thank you so very much, Darren. Thank you very much, Darren. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Again, thank you for having me. Of sure. course. <laughs> so this is Jason and Peely with the REI Foundation podcast with Darren Sager. Thank you so very much. And we will see you later. Bye. Bye now. Hi, everybody. Peely here from the REI Foundation podcast. Looking to rev up your wholesaling or house flipping business? Go now to houseflippinghq.com. Jason and I are part of a house flipping family, a community created by Justin Williams. Would we be where we are without him and without his community and his mentors? Probably not. Justin and his team basically handed us personalized shortcuts and exact strategies that have made us explode in today's market. So if you're looking to take the next step, go to houseflippinghq.com right now. Again, this is Peely from the REI Foundation podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we are so grateful for you. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.